Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning again. Uh, today we have an honor, uh, the honor of hearing uh, from God's word from Ben Leatherberry. Uh, ben currently serves at our daughter church, All Saints Church, on the other side of town. But God is preparing him and his family and another family to go and plant a church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, that is particularly near and dear to my heart and my wife's heart. My wife is from the Eau Claire area, and we believe that there is a great need for more good news, verse-by-verse Bible teaching in the Eau Claire area. And to be honest, that's why I kind of went to seminary was because of that. And so we are so excited about what God is doing uh, and how God is sending Ben and his family uh, to go plant a church in Eau Claire. So Ben, if you would come forward, ask Ben to spend just a few minutes with us this morning, sharing with us a little bit about his mission and then open God's word to us. So thank you, brother. Thanks, Dan. Uh, as Pastor Dan said, my name is Ben Leatherberry. Um, it's really special to be here at Jacob's Well. Little do you know, perhaps, that Jacob's Well has played a really significant part in my story. Ron Young, an elder here, married my wife and I years ago, and it stuck. So you did a good job. Praise the Lord. Um, but also about, about 10 years ago, maybe 8 to 10 years ago, we'll say, I sat down with a pastor named Dan Jackson, and I said, Dan... I think Jacob's Well would want to give us money to go to the Middle East for the rest of our lives. And Dan said, what about planting a church in Eau Claire? It's like, no, Dan, no, not ever, never, ever. Thanks again. Um, and here I am. Um, my wife and I, we spent some years overseas. I've uh, married, I don't know if I, got a, if I have a picture today or not. Um, if you do see the picture, it is on one of these brochures out there. This is a promotional for uh, Molly Thomas. We don't normally look this clean, but Molly Thomas here, Pastor Spencer's wife, did a good job uh, giving us a picture. But as I said, um, going to Eau Claire, um, a verse often comes to mind in thinking about churches and planting churches, and it's Matthew 9. And Jesus, he, he says when he, or it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The, but uh, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, that is our context. The Midwest, this 13-state region is uh, home to about 72 million people. Statistics say upwards of 61 million perhaps are either de-churched, right, left the church and never coming back, or they're unchurched, haven't grown up in the church. It means our neighbors don't know Jesus and no one is telling them perhaps. And so we need to go out into the harvest and tell them about the good news about a King Jesus who has come to save them. So it's part of the reason why uh, we hope to go to Eau Claire, that place I said I wouldn't go. When you minister overseas, you, uh, you have one goal, Reach the locals, right? Because the locals can reach the locals. I didn't want to go to Eau Claire because I'm a local. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Um, 
But I, I pray to go and be able to talk about the mercy of God to a people who not only need the gospel as good news, but a gospel as good news, but also the life of faith, hope, and love that comes in and through Jesus Christ. Pray to go and do that. And so some ways if you want, if you're interested in hearing more, I have some, some brochures out there. Uh, for you and uh, a sign-up sheet if you'd like to know more. Certainly, we're, we're in this phase of seeking prayer and financial support. That's there. But one thing, a fun ask, is if you know people in Eau Claire, we would love, 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 love to meet them and get to learn more about the story of Eau Claire and how the Lord is already working there. Okay, that's it. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have told us to call you Father. You have initiated and called us to come. And so we come. We come to be led by Jesus, the great worship leader in this service. We come to hear the voice of you, God, not the voice of men. Would you speak, O Lord, to us today from your word? Would you humble us to hear it? Would you guide us on, giving us the gift of repentance and the gift of faith? Faith in the King who ransoms rebels like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A recent professor of mine, he likes to tell this story about a children's Sunday school class in the South. The teacher, not my professor, but the teacher in the class, began the class saying, I have a guessing game. You ready? What is small, furry, and lives in a tree? The children were silent. The teacher continues, come on now, don't be shy. Don't be shy. It has a bushy tail and it eats nuts. Silence. Puzzled looks. Sooner or later, a brave soul little boy raises his hand and says, teacher, teacher, I know the answer is Jesus, but that sounds a lot like a squirrel. See, when we come to church, we likely know the answer is going to be Jesus, right? But do you know, do we know what it means that the answer is Jesus? For some of us who grew up in the church, we're familiar with how this works. Sunday schools, Bible studies, Lord's Day worship, the answer is Jesus. But even when we're familiar with the right answer, it does not mean we've already bought into it, that we bought into it at all. We can become so familiar with something but not test our own hearts to see if we truly, truly believe it. Ask yourself today, do I have a faith that marvels, marvels in Jesus? Is Jesus amazing to me or has he grown dull and disinteresting? Is Jesus lovely? Is he lovely to you or is he just useful does your life reflect that Jesus is king or that you are king? At times we can hide in the familiarity of things, even Sunday morning worship, right? And yet our hearts, our hearts may have far more unbelief in them than marvelous faith. Now for those of us who didn't grow up in Sunday school, that answer being Jesus is crazy to you, right? That's the, it's a squirrel, right? That's the last thing you would have thought. Perhaps you're here knowing that your heart resides in the land of unbelief, of 
about Jesus. Perhaps you're here wounded about past faith experiences, here to see if these Christians really live like the answer is Jesus. Maybe you're here genuinely asking if Jesus really is the answer to life's biggest questions, is the comforter to life's biggest hurts, or is the king over everything. Perhaps you're here because your parents or friend dragged you, praise God, that parents drag children, as we heard in the testimony this morning to church. But perhaps for you being dragged here, it doesn't matter to you whether Jesus is Jesus or a brown furry squirrel. That makes no difference to you. You don't care. And the message that Jesus is king and calls you to faith in himself, that message maybe is entirely foreign to you today. And you happily wear unbelief on your chest. I'm glad you're here. In our text today, we find those who are so familiar with Jesus that they can only unbelieve, not a real word, but I'm using it, unbelieve that he is king. And then there are those who find Jesus' claim to be king so foreign, only worthy of unbelief. And finally, there are those who show a marvelous faith, believing Jesus to be who Mark says he is, king, king. The underlying theme, I think it's in your worship guides, uh, the underlying theme or your bulletins, that is, the theme is in our text is that King Jesus calls us to marvelous faith. King Jesus calls us to marvelous faith. So believe. So believe. In verses 1 through 6, King Jesus desires marvelous faith in you. And in verses 7 to 13, second point, King Jesus demands. He demands and he delivers faith in you. So look with me at verses 1 through 6. I'm going to open. I don't know the page number. Maybe it's, let's see there. Yep, you'll have to find it. It's in Mark 841. I just got a word from the Lord. Page 841. Thank you, Pastor Dan Jackson. He speaks, the Lord speaks through Dan. Praise God. So in verses 1 through 6, what do we find? Jesus going home to Nazareth with his disciples in tow. See, Jesus enters a place where he is familiar, right? In this town, they knew Jesus. They watched him grow up. This is the place Jesus scraped his knees, split his lip. Perhaps Jesus made chairs and tables for these neighbors in Nazareth. Jesus looked like them. He had lived like them, right? He worked with his hands like they did. But they knew he bore no rabbi's education. This is a place of utter familiarity for them and for Jesus. Now in verse 2, what do we find? On the Sabbath, Jesus teaches in the synagogue. The synagogue is the place of local Jewish worship. It's where they gathered on the Sabbath. And initially, their questions sound like they marvel at Jesus, as the crowds typically did. But before we're even out of verse 2, we learn that their questions are actually intended to disparage, to insult, to actually show their offense of, at Jesus. Is this not the carpenter, right? Isn't this a village handyman? He isn't a rabbi to teach us. Isn't this Mary's son? Right? In a culture that identifies sons with fathers, identifying Jesus with, with Mary was likely dishonorable. 
Or perhaps it even insinuated that Jesus was an illegitimate child, as rumored to be long ago. They point out that he can't hide who his family is. They're known. They're saying, Jesus, we're familiar with you. Whatever you're playing at out there, it's not going to work here. Why should we expect anything extraordinary from you? What's worse is that even in his, his own family, back in Mark 3, verse 21, they're recorded as saying or believing Jesus is out of his mind. They're trying to get him to come home. In verse 5, it says that he could do no mighty work there. Now, if you've seen the film Elf, right, Will Ferrell, big guy, uh, Santa's sleigh won't fly. Why? Because the people don't believe in him. It's not enough faith. That's not, how this, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have a believe-o-meter. And now he can do it. Nope. That's not how Jesus works. You see, Jesus is still able to heal. He's still able to teach. He does. Even there in the text, it says he does. But it's not his power, but his mission. It's his mission that is limited here. Because they've already heard his words. They've already seen his works. And yet to Jesus' face, they say, come on, we know you. It's in the face of ongoing, stubborn, blatant rejection that Jesus' mission becomes limited. It would be a, a contradiction for him to continue to present himself over and over again while they say, no, thank you. If you look at verse 6, there's this word, thalmazo. It means to marvel, to wonder. See the word marvel there? To have your jaw drop over something. In the Gospels, we find um, <clears throat> Jesus only marveling at two things. Do you know what they are? One is in Matthew 8, where he marvels over the faith of a Roman centurion. So I haven't found faith like this anywhere, Jesus says. And where else do we find it? Right here, he marvels, he wonders, is in disbelief about their unbelief. He can't believe it. Why do they still unbelieve in Jesus' words and works? Well, verse 4 tells us, or Jesus tells us there. I paraphrase, Jesus says that a prophet is rejected by those most familiar with him. Hometown, relatives, household. Their familiarity produces unbelief. Jesus is lackluster. Jesus must be out of his mind, or maybe he's in cahoots with an evil, evil power of some sort. They had faith-killing familiarity. They had faith-killing familiarity. And it produced unbelief. Uh, two days ago, a wedding happened here. Yes, it did. A wedding happened here right. Aren't weddings marvelous? They're marvelous events. Love is in the air, right? I can't, I won't finish it. David got hired here as the music guy, not me. We both came out of All Saints. That's where that, that comes from. Love is in the air. We come to weddings with joy, right? Ready to celebrate, ready to marvel over God's institution of marriage. Also ready to dance and be fed, probably, like fun Presbyterians. We, we get to see the amazement in two people's eyes who are about to be married, and there is nothing, almost nothing, 
quite like it. But what happens in time in marriage? Promises tend to be broken. The love in the air vanishes. Best intentions, hope-filled goals. Oh, he'll change. Oh, she'll never change. Right? It all gets so dull, monotonous, a bit too familiar. See, the most glorious of things can be killed when not cultivated or having a faith-filled familiarity. See, familiarity isn't bad in and of itself. Most of our Christian lives will be ordinary, but they're filled with faith in those ordinary moments, not just familiarity, not just familiar moments. But we, we shouldn't be surprised that this happens with marriage because we do it with everything, right? A new toy, a new smartphone, a new jacket, song, car. It only takes a little bit of time when these things come to mind and we say, oh, that old thing? Our, our unchecked, unchallenged, uncultivated familiarity breeds dullness, breeds disinterest, and at times disbelief or un belief about the worth of something, perhaps even marriage, perhaps even Jesus. In your life, in your life, do you think on and treat Jesus like an, oh, that old thing? Does faith in the triune God feel so familiar that you don't marvel at Jesus anymore? Does Jesus only find unbelief in your heart, unbelieving that he is knowable today, that he is present, that he cares for you, or that he is who Mark says he is, king? You see, the people of Nazareth, Jesus' family, they watch Jesus grow up before their eyes. They're familiar in that way, so they can't believe that this is God, God in the flesh, For some of us, our familiarity comes because we grew up in the church, right? We know the stories, the songs, the prayers, ho-hum, nothing new, that old thing. For some of us, it was back in 1962, 82, 2002, that we heard of Jesus' words and works, and we believed. We believed, but yet we sit in church every week or, meh, every once in a while, and we wonder, is this all there is? This old thing. For you who confess faith in Jesus Christ, ask yourself, is is it marvelous? Is Is it wonderful? I'll ask it in a different way. Do you live like Jesus is lovely? Not just useful, but lovely. How how intellectually stimulating is God's word or his doctrine for you? Is it just that? Check in the box. I'm good with religion. It's good enough. Do you live like the triune God is all-powerful, like Jesus is indeed king? Do you name your fears to this all-powerful one over coming food shortages? The government put us on notice this week. Food shortage is coming. Do you name those fears to the all-powerful one about uncertain future, about unreconciled family conflict, or about a lackluster or struggling faith? If someone listened in on our prayers, would they say, whoa, whoa, this person believes that God isn't just useful for their problems, practical for their lives, but is lovely, is trustworthy, and is king. 
king over all things, able to change anything. Maybe a harder question even to consider is, would your kids, would your coworkers, would your parents, close friends describe your faith as marvelous or as dull and disinteresting, looking more like unbelief? You see, if Jesus desires, if Jesus desires that we have marvelous faith in us, how do we then believe? How do we then believe? Believing looks like being honest and acknowledging that you've let Jesus become so uninterestingly familiar to you. He's, he's the answer, but you stopped asking the questions, at least to him. Confess this. That means to agree. Agree with God or, and, and tell this even to a spouse, someone in your community group, perhaps even your kids, whenever they're, even, whether they're six or 16, say, buddy, my faith isn't what it once was. Ask them even to pray for you. Ask one another to pray for you that God would give you not unbelief but marvelous, pray, marvelous faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Our culture says you gotta have faith. God says you gotta have faith in me. Not just faith, faith in me. Faith in the one that I have sent, Jesus Christ who lived the life that you have not, who died the death that you deserve to die, and then rose again to bring new life to all those whom he wants to be back under his reign, in his spiritual kingdom. He created you, he loves you, he came to save you. Our response after acknowledging our unbelieving hearts is to believe, like Hebrews said, to believe he exists and that he rewards me. He rewards me when I seek him first. He actually gives the faith that he demands. We'll get to that in the next point. See, Jesus already desires marvelous faith in you. And if you believe, if you believe and seek him, he will give it to you. Right? Christ led the charge in order to establish such faith in you. That's, that's our second point. It's, uh, turn our attention here to verses 7 through 13. Okay, we should see that, that Jesus not only desires, but he demands, he demands faith in you. Let me pause. I realize as I've, I've gotten so far in here, and I'm about to read 7 through 13, that I never read verses 1 through, <laughs> 1 through 6. Thank you for the nod. Thank you for the nod. So we're switching it up, keeping you on your toes, trying to break that familiarity. You see all that, yep. So Mark 6, 1 through, 3, or 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and jo Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verses 7 through 13 here. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What we should see is not only that Jesus desires, not only just desires marvelous faith, but that he also demands it. And then he delivers such faith to us. So we must believe. Verses uh, 7 through 13 reveal what has always been Jesus' plan. In Mark 1, he calls them, what, fishers of men. In Mark 3, he put them on notice. He said, you're going to go out and preach. You're going to exercise authority over unclean spirits. And you see that's happening right here. And we should even notice in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus even teaches them how to handle rejection, especially from those closest to you. The mission goes on. Jesus continues to teach, and now he multiplies himself. He sends out the disciples with the Spirit of God in them to tell this message. So how does Jesus send them out? Verse 7 says that he gives the word and the authority, and he sends them out two by two. So there's two things we should notice here. One, in that time, or two things we should know, in that time, when a king was coming to town, he would not send just one, but he would send two heralds. That's how you know this is a king. We're serious. There's two of us coming to declare it. And second, in the Old Testament, for a testimony, in order to be valid, you needed at least two people, right? Here walks along two who have a legitimate testimony about a coming king, right? They come out with an authorized testimony about the king coming. In verses 8 through 10, they're not riding into town on the newest camel or donkey, no AC, right? No, Jesus says, take no bread, take no bag in order to beg, no small coin belt, can't even take an extra, an extra cloak, an extra tunic to keep warm at night. Jesus tells them to stay with whoever gives them shelter first and not to look for a more comfortable accommodation. That's what that line's getting at. You go where I provide for you first. Stay there. But all of this, these, these commands that Jesus gives them is meant to breed something in his disciples. What is it? Marvelous faith. True dependence upon Jesus. To see that the power isn't coming from them, from their silver and gold, but from the message of the good news of the king who's coming to town. Friends, this is the type of heart that he is demanding and shaping in his disciples. And that he wants to shape in all who would follow him. Marvelous faith, true dependence on him. 
So what is that oh-so-attractive message that they come declaring? Verse 12, repent. It's not going to sell many shirts, right? Repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to feel sorrow, sorrow over sinful actions, thoughts, motivations. It means to call it that. That's to agree with God. This is sin. And repentance means turning the opposite direction from that, committing to turn from that thing. Why is it, why is it that Jesus can demand repentance from us? Why does Jesus get to demand repentance from us, from following anyone or anything other than him? Well, the book of Mark emphasizes the answer for us. This is all through Mark. Jesus is king. The king gets to call for, demand, whatever he pleases. In Mark 1.15, this is how it all starts out. Jesus came saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's here. So believe the gospel. That is, what? The good news that the king and his kingdom have come to town. That's the message. Repent and believe because the king is coming. So this is such an important thing for us to, for us to understand. Whether, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Christian or not, understand the claim of Jesus. Right? He's, he's not a class president saying, vote for me and you'll get extra snacks, more recess, yay. No, he's not a cosmic butler, ding, 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 right? Say, with the bell and he's gonna come along and give us what we want, no. Jesus is coming and saying, I'm king. I'm king over everything. Hebrews 1 says that the world is upheld by the word of his power, Colossians 1 says that you, your lives, all of them hold together this very instant because Jesus says so. That's the type of king he is. He sends out his proclaimers to give a good news warning. Repent and follow the king. And friends, in in truth, in truth, Jesus demanding repentance is actually a really attractive message. Why? Why is that an attractive message? You see, because in Jesus' kingdom, People are released from evil powers. You are set free from the internal chaos of your own life. You are set free from faithlessness with each other. Set free from hopelessness, from sin, sickness, and death. Set free from lovelessness in all of your relationships. Jesus is a different type of king. And he rules a spiritual kingdom now, which he set up when he came. And he is going to rule the physical kingdom, which comes when he returns. We also must notice this about, uh, about Jesus in Mark. This is one of the key verses of Mark. Jesus is a different type of king. He's a different type of king. Mark 10.45 says that Jesus is a king who came to give his life as a ransom. What does that mean? Ransom, it means to buy back someone, to buy back you from sin, death, and the devil. That's a good king. It's an unbelievable king who comes to do this for you. So Jesus can demand repentance and marvelous faith, and then he also can deliver such faith to us. See, the gospels are showing God himself, God himself coming, right? This is God coming, bringing his words and works, seeking to establish faith in you. It's a gift of God. Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus is the author, the originator, 
the perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.29 says that he grants, he gives us faith. And even a fan favorite, Ephesians 2.8, right, which says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. The word gift here, it's for all you English, English fans, it's antecedent. The word it's linked to, it's most likely faith. The gift of God is faith. And it's, that faith does bring all of salvation, right? You still get the whole package there. But, get, but faith is the gift that Christ gives to us. What happens, though, what happens, friends, when Jesus' demand for marvelous faith isn't met with repentance. You can look at verse, verse 11. The disciples were to shake off the dust as a two-person testimony against the town. And this action was to say, this town has rejected God. This town will answer to God. We should notice this. The judgment is not immediate. It's not immediate. Rather, this shaking off of the dust is a gospel warning That's a good news warning, actually. Be warned. If you reject us, town, as you have, there is a coming king. And you still have time to change your mind. Part of this is gracious in the warning. Recently, uh, I was driving on Highway 29 West, that direction, I think. And just before the Shawano exit, there is this orange sign that says, Bump. Maybe you've seen it. I thought, okay, I'm sure it's not that bad. Lo and behold, there was a reckoning for that unbelief between my head and the roof of my car. Don't hit it going 70, I recommend. But how often are you driving, or maybe mom and dad are driving, and you see a warning sign like ice on bridge, falling rock, bridge out ahead, and you say, wow. What a closed-minded sign that is. That sign's a real bigot. That's just one view on this. And you hit the gas. No. (laughs) Of course not. You see, those signs, those warning signs, may not seem like good news initially, but they are. It's It's a warning to keep you from destruction. The towns that rejected Jesus, or you today, my friend, who may reject the claim that, this, that he is the foreign king who has come and will come again, this warning sign for you is a gracious sign. It is. It tells you there's still time to lay down your false kingship and receive marvelous faith from him. Haven't we lived long enough as if we're the king? Are we still overworked and underpaid, right? We try to control our lives and the job still isn't quite doing what we want it to. Or maybe you're paid well, you have fulfilling work, but yet you have no life outside of that. You have children who feel fatherless and motherless. You have husbands and wives who feel spouseless. You know what is worse than best laid plans not happening? Or maybe it's better. It's when your best laid plans do happen and they're terrible, right? Your best laid plans working out just the way you want. Often we realize, I'm a bad king. If we haven't figured this out yet, we indeed will. Just look at the signs of life 
right? Our bodies are decaying. The failing of our finances or our retirement funds as the world economy perhaps is collapsing, right? Even your most cared for friendships you're trying to, to handle, those friends abandon you. You and I are not in control. We're not in control. Even when we look like we are, we make pretty bad kings. And so even if the message that Jesus is king is foreign to you today, and your only response is perhaps unbelief, it doesn't change that Jesus is king. It doesn't change that he is king. And the gospel warning is a yellow sign that says, bump, slow down, consider this claim. The only response to this King Jesus for us who demands marvelous faith and delivers such faith is to believe. It's to believe. Believing looks like repenting, one, repenting, and asking for help. Repentance, surrender is not easy, of course, uh, but, it, but it perhaps can look easier when we understand the type of king that is calling for it. By the grace of the triune God, of course. Why? Because he is the king who gave your eyes their color, who sculpted your hands and your fingers. He's the one who sculpts your personality, your sense of humor. He also holds the sun up in the ground below your feet. That's the type of king he is. He's also the type of king who leads the charge who came humbly to earth, who lived a life we could never live, frankly wouldn't want to. And he died a shameful death on a cross. He died the death that sinful rebels, you and me, ought to die before a holy king. And then he rose again to be the king of a spiritual kingdom where when we repent and believe, we enter into that spiritual kingdom. He becomes our king, but get it, we're not just happy subjects, no. He actually makes us sons, daughters, sons and daughters. When someone calls you princess, it's actually true, ladies. Believing means first repenting and living, a repenting of living for yourself, of your best laid plans, of whatever you think will satisfy you. Perhaps the question you need to chew on today is what is Jesus demanding me to show marvelous faith in by giving up? What do I need to repent of and lay down before this good, oh so good king? But believing also looks like praying a simple but urgent prayer. In a couple weeks, you'll read Mark 9. It's a great prayer there. It goes like this. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Or perhaps today you're sitting here and you know you don't have faith. But maybe your interest is piqued. What kind of king does that? What kind of king comes from me? Would you pray, I don't believe. I don't believe, but King Jesus, would you give me faith? Would you help me to believe in this king who is over everything, who gave me all the things I like and all the things I don't like in this life? He gave it all. He gave himself. Would you pray, I don't believe, but would you give me faith, King Jesus? See, Jesus came to save sinners like you and me and all the other sinners in here too, made saints through Christ. Let me close with just one final story about a family. 
Um, there once were two brothers in a large family. Their family was poor, uh, but their father was a, a handyman, okay? He, he was a tradesman, and the family helped him in the business over time. Now, as they grew older, however, they had one sibling who started to go crazy. One of their brothers seemed to lose his mind doing and saying wild things. And everywhere that brother went, the crowds were sure to go. The brothers heard confounding things about this brother. People somehow getting better, powerful new teaching, spiritual forces chased out of town. Who is this brother? Give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. But now, the real question is, who are these two brothers? If you look at verse 3, there's two names mentioned in these brothers, James and Judas, or we know him as Jude. This is a very abbreviated story of James and Judas. And the story is actually a powerful picture of a foreign message to brothers who are incredibly familiar with Jesus. You see in the passage, we have two hard hearts steeped in unbelief, two cold hearts who called out in Mark 3, Jesus, you're out of your mind. Two rebel hearts that end up surrendering to King Jesus, their biological brother. James goes on to write a book called, not Jesus, James, in the New Testament. James 1.1, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In James 2, he calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Jude, Jude writes the book of Jude in the New Testament, and he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. In case you didn't know, that's my brother who wrote that book. And later he calls Jesus master and Lord. Friends, if you who were once rooted in unbelief, or I should say rather, if they who were once rooted in unbelief, Jesus perhaps marveled about their unbelief. If that is you today, in hard-hearted familiarity, if that's you today who ignores this message of a foreign king who has come to save you, yes, yes, you, if they can repent and believe, so can you and I by the grace of God. King Jesus ransoms not only his biological brothers, but also strangers and rebels like us, making us sons and daughters. He calls us to marvelous faith in him. So we believe, acknowledging and confessing that we've become woefully familiar and it's disinteresting to us. And then we believe he exists, Hebrews 11. He, we believe he exists and we seek him, knowing that he rewards us with that faith he desires to put in us. We also understand that he demands and delivers that marvelous faith to us. So we repent of living as if we're the king. We repent of our best laid plans and of ignoring the bump sign, ignoring the gracious warning sign. And we pray a really simple prayer. I don't believe. Give me faith, King Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. In truth, in the end, we must know that our faith is made marvelous not by the strength of it. Our faith is not made marvelous by the strength of it, but rather by its object, Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ is what makes our faith marvelous. King Jesus ransoms sinners like you and me to eternal life. The answer is Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what an audacious thing that you would tell us to call you Father. Lord, we live in this world entitled to thinking these things are our things, that our eyes and our hands and our, our feet and our personalities are our things and not your things. You were a king. You were a king and are a king who travels into a hometown and issues good news. You issue us gospel warnings that we might believe, that we might be ransomed back to the God who indeed call, tells us to call him Father. Oh God, would you give us faith today? We don't believe and we need you to give us faith, King Jesus, or we believe and we desperately need your help with our unbelief. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.